Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, our, our text this morning is verses 18 to 30. As you're turning, just mention again, mention in the announcements, we'll be in John's Gospel this month of November, then the first Sunday of December as we do. We'll be looking at a section of the Bible and trying to see how it tells us about Christmas. And we've done this in various places, Christmas in Revelation we've talked about, Christmas in John. Uh, last year, Christmas in the, Revel, in Revel, in, uh, excuse me, in the Minor Prophets. Uh, but this year, we're going to be looking at Christmas in Isaiah, Isaiah 4, 11, 9, uh, and 7, 4, 7, 9, and 11. Um, those, these different passages uh, that point us forward to the coming of the Messiah, which means they're about Christmas. Uh, so uh, that'll be December, uh, but through this month we'll be continuing in this upper room discourse that began in, in the previous section that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, the beginning of chapter 13, and extends through chapter 17 as Jesus gives this longest block of teaching. But in the midst of this, we've already seen this enacted parable, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And here uh, we see how the darkness comes, the darkness that already is in Judas, um, and threatens to envelop Jesus too, and yet it cannot, can it? At the very beginning of John's gospel, we're told the darkness cannot overcome him. Why? Uh, because he's light. He's the very light of life. In fact, the light of the world, as we've already heard this morning. And so we have here not just theological truths about darkness and light, we have here hope. We have here hope that in the midst of our darkness... We don't have to keep wandering around. Jesus, the light of the world, can enter in and deliver us from us. But in order for that to happen for us this morning, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do need the Spirit's help. If we simply came to the Word, Holy Scripture, with unaided reason, we might understand certain things, we might have some measure of apprehension or comprehension, but it would not penetrate to our hearts. It would not persuade us to give our very selves away to Jesus. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and you would use your Word in our lives. May Holy Scripture be for us today the very Word of God. And may you transform us uh, into a living hope through these words. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, John chapter 13, beginning in verse 18. Jesus says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. 
One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus for whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in C.S. Lewis's story, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, Lewis has a scene in which the, the traveling crew, as they are on their odyssey, come to a place that they will eventually name uh, Dark Island. They don't know there's an island there yet. They simply see darkness as the ship and the crew uh, approaches. And Lewis described the darkness this way. He said, it's rather hard to describe, but you will see what it's like if you imagine yourself looking into the mouth of a railway tunnel. Uh, A tunnel either so long or so twisty, you cannot see uh, the light at the far side. And you know what it would be like. For a few feet, you would see the rails and sleepers and gravel in broad daylight. And then there would come a place that they were in twilight. And then pretty suddenly, but of course, without a sharp dividing line, they would vanish altogether into smooth, solid blackness. It was just so here. Um, Of course, the the crew does enter into that darkness. They're urged on by that heroic and valiant mouse, Rinpachip. And they find one of the missing lords on this island. But they also discover that this place is the place where dreams come true. Not pleasant dreams, but dreams. Which causes them to turn their ship quickly and and trying to escape the darkness. But after rowing and rowing, Caspian realizes they've, they've not gotten very far. And he says, Drinian, to the captain of the ship, Drinian, how long did we take rowing in? I mean, rowing to where we picked up the stranger. Five minutes, perhaps. Why? replied Drinian. Because we've been more than that already trying to get out. Drinian's hand shook on the tiller, and and a line of cold sweat ran down his face, and the same was occurring to, to everyone on board. We shall never get out! Never get out, moaned the rowers. He's steering us wrong. We're going round and round in circles. We shall never get out. That's how darkness makes us feel. Like we're going round and round in circles. Like like we're captured and lost. Like, Like we're open to violence and confusion. Like we shall never get out. In our text this morning, which we read together, the most chilling words are the last words in verse 30. And it was night. 
All the biblical commentators on this text are are united in seeing, and it was not, not simply as a chronological statement, but as a theological one. A recognition that in this scene, we have the approach of the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In the next hours, in these hours of darkness and night, Satan himself will oppose the Lord of glory with all of his nefarious powers and purposes, with all of his wicked plans. But this, this is also a statement about Judas's own condition. He's been engaged in a vast deceit. Outwardly, he appears to be a disciple. He has seen the miracles. He's heard Jesus' teaching. He's followed him for three years. He's been involved in mission. He's gone to foreign parts and preached the gospel to others. He's seen the power of God heal. Outwardly, he seems to be a disciple. And in fact, he's, he's held in some measure of honor among the others. Because, of course, as we know, he's the treasurer of the, dis- the disciples' group. But inwardly, inwardly, his heart has never been fully engaged. And even before this final meal, the other gospel accounts will tell you that Judas has already gone to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus. Something's gone terribly wrong for Judas. Perhaps he he thought that Jesus had come to overthrow the Romans and to reestablish the Jews in in their own land with their own kingdom. But now it's clear that Jesus' mission wasn't simply to overthrow the Romans, but to overthrow the devil and all his powers through his own death. And so Judas, seeing Jesus' death wish, this messianic complex that he has, is determined to, to do something to rescue himself, at least, from the situation, if not to rescue Jesus from Jesus. Of course, we're not exactly sure what he's thinking, but it does seem clear that Judas is is now plunged in darkness. He has gone out into the darkness and into the nights. His deceit, his hypocrisy, it was becoming increasingly untenable. His deception was becoming undone, and the darkness was gaining greater hold over him. And perhaps he felt if he didn't act now, he would never get out. But it's so challenging because because what the Bible tells us here is that he's been deceived by Satan. We we already know that that John chapter 13, verse 2, which we looked at last time, tells us that the devil had already put it in the heart of, of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus. In what we read Here together this morning in verse 27, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered in to him. And though Judas has already been identified in this way in in John chapter 6, you remember Jesus said, one of you is a devil. Here we find the prince of darkness has actually entered into the heart of Judas to carry out this cosmic battle against the Son of God in the same way that the dark power, the enemy, had used a serpent, a snake, in order to speak his nefarious plan into being and to try to take down the first Adam. Here he's using Judas, 
This serpentine power is using Judas in order to affect his plan against the second Adam. And even more, knowing that the second Adam is the Lord of glory himself. Friends, you cannot imagine how horrible this is. Jesus had observed in a different gospel much earlier that it would have been better if, if the betrayer had never been born. It's not only because he would be the one playing the role of, of bringing Jesus' own enemies into his presence, but because he was deceived. He was, he'd given himself over to the enemy, not the Jews, but to the devil himself to carry out his bidding. And yet, though, though he's under Satan's influence, under Satan's control, he's, he's in the role of the adversary, yet he's still able, at some level, to deceive others. It's striking that, that Jesus' announcement of the betrayal, it doesn't cause everybody to say, oh yeah, that's Judas. Right? They don't say that. In the other Gospels, they, they ask the question, is it I? Could it be me? Here in John's Gospel, he, the, verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. No one sitting around the table that night would have, would have fingered Judas as the one. Would have, would have said, oh, it's him. And two, because he's the disciples' treasurer, they trusted him. And so when Jesus tells him to go do what he needs to do quickly, what does the Bible tell you? Verse 29, some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Judas was trusted. He was esteemed highly. He was viewed well. Even at this point, they don't suspect that Judas is the betrayer. He had deceived them. In fact... Commentators believe that, that Judas was sitting in one of the places of, of honor. You remember elsewhere in Scripture, the places of honor are described at Jesus' right hand and at Jesus' left. But if Jesus was reclining at table with his left hand holding up his head and his right hand free for eating, then it's likely that John was sitting on his right close to Jesus. And Judas is sitting on his left in the place of honor. Such was the darkness. Such was the confusion around Judas through his own deceits, influenced by Satan, by the enemy, deceiving others. But friends, he was, he was above all, he, he was deceiving himself. Perhaps Judas thought that, that if he would betray Jesus, that Jesus would just be locked up in jail, like Barabbas and other freedom fighters apparently were. Uh, maybe he had persuaded himself that if, if he betrayed Jesus to these chief priests, that they would take care of him as a rabbi. After all, he was just trying to, to save Jesus. Perhaps that's what he's telling himself. I think there's some clue to that. Matthew's gospel tells us that when Judas the betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. I think when Judas saw that Jesus was condemned to die, he said, it all went contrary to my plan. I didn't intend this to happen. 
I didn't intend for them to kill Jesus, even though John's gospel has told us all along the way that the Jews from chapter 5 on were seeking an opportunity to kill Jesus. He had to have known that. But perhaps he had convinced himself He's doing this for Jesus' good, for, for Israel's good, for his own good. He probably didn't even know his own reasons, did he? Because, of course, Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? Others can't know your heart, but, friend, because of the darkness in your heart, you can't know your own heart. And that's the problem with deceit's darkness. Confusion swirls around us. Our sinful darkness overwhelms us, and we can't know our own heart. Some of you know this darkness. Some of you know this, this kind of deceit. You, you've been engaged in a big lie. Oh, outwardly, outwardly, you look like a disciple. Every once in a while you come to church and you attend a worship service. Every once in a while you pick up your Bible. Every, every once in a while you pray. Every once in a while you tell your children and your grandchildren, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You, you do just enough to match something up with the words that you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so outwardly you, you look as though you're a follower, but you know your heart to some degree and you know the darkness inside. And the hypocrisy is starting to come unraveled. And the, and, the, and the play acting is starting to come undone. Your wife is on to you. Your husband's on to you. Your kids are knowing something. Your co-workers, are, they, seem to be, they seem to be aware. But, but this, this deception, this deceit, it's getting harder and harder to cover your tracks. It's getting harder and harder to, to make sure that your facade is, is not cracking apart. Because you can't keep it up. This, this pretense of being a follower of Jesus Christ and yet holding on to your, holding on to your darkness. Some of you are holding on to, to this darkness of pleasure and you've never given that over to Jesus. And you've, 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 you've said the right words. You've, you've prayed the sinner's prayer. But this, these pleasures that you hold on to, the, the pleasures of the flesh, the pleasures of the eyes, the pride of life, these pleasures, you cannot give them up. You will not give them up. They're what you run to, to deliver you. Others of you, you can't give up your power, your control over your life. Your control is, is extended in such a way that you have to control everything. You have to control your day-to-day -day moments. You have to control your spouse. You have to control your kids. Your home is a showplace because it has to be controlled. You cannot give up your power. Others of you, you can't give up your, your places of position and privilege. And you cling to that. That's where you run when things seem to be falling apart. You trumpet the fact that, that your money, your influence is what really matters. And this deceit and this hypocrisy, you've presented yourself one way. But like Judas, you've been clinging to your darkness and you're going around and around and around. And you wonder, is there any hope for me? I know this darkness. I'm not happy with the tension between the face I present and the real me. But I've, 
maybe this is just the way the Christian life is. Maybe this is what it looks like to be a follower, to say the right words, but not actually have it transform my life. Listen, that's you this morning. There's hope because love isn't going to let you go. Jesus himself is determined to overcome your darkness. He's the light of light. And, and because Jesus is, in fact, love's light, he can shine in your darkness, and in fact, he can overcome it. He can overcome it. But this passage is so dark, you wonder where the light is, but there are these shafts of light shining if we have eyes to see and hearts to believe what Jesus is showing us here. You see love's light, first of all, in the fact that Jesus shows himself to be sovereign. He shows himself to be the true king over over all that's happening here. We've already seen that in in chapter 13. Uh, We noted that there were two knowing statements in the first three verses of the chapter. And in chapter 13, verse 3, Jesus, or John, excuse me, tells us of Jesus, that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things in his hands. Jesus had all things. He had all authority. He was sovereign. He's the king. He's in control. Nothing's taking him by surprise. But he tells us that too in the very opening of this section we read in verse 18. He says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen. Though Judas was engaged in a, in a vast deceit, Jesus isn't surprised. Though, Jesus, though Judas had given himself over to the darkness, had given himself over to the devil himself, didn't shock Jesus. Jesus knew Because, of course, this was according to his plan, his purpose. He's the sovereign. He's the king. And when he tells Judas what you're going to do, do quickly. These aren't the words of a man resigned to his fate. Not the words of a man desperate or fearful. These are the words of a king ready for a great battle, ready to make great sacrifices and to win a great victory. As light is piercing in through this darkness, it's piercing through your darkness because the love that's pursuing you is a sovereign king who will not let you go. If you belong to him, he won't let you stay in darkness. The sovereign king is pursuing you and he's going to do so in ways that fulfill his own word, his own scripture. The sovereign king has come to to fulfill what scripture teaches. That's what you see at the beginning of the passage Jesus says in verse 18, he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's a, that's a quotation from Psalm 41, verse 9. Jesus here is, is highlighting that as the sovereign king, he's, he's going to fulfill scripture. He's going to fill the meaning of scripture full, and especially this passage Because David writes, Psalm 41, uh, in the aftermath of an attempt by his son Solomon to usurp his throne. And the the one who has betrayed David is his closest advisor. One of his best friends, Ahithophel. This one who had eaten at David's table and given him such godly counsel was the one who was raising his heel against him. And twice, John in this account he tells, he makes the connection between what, what Jesus is doing with that quotation from Psalm 41 and what's happening with Judas. Twice he does it. Verse 26, he uses this language. 
It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. And then verse 30, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. This one who had taken my bread, just as Ahithophel had done to try to betray the true king and so give the throne to a false king, so Judas took the bread and he was trying to betray the true king and to enthrone a false king, the devil himself, Satan who continues to wage war against Jesus and his purposes and plans. Don't you see that scripture is being fulfilled, but it's being fulfilled under the command of Jesus the sovereign. It's a light shining in the darkness that if Jesus is so insistent that this scripture will be fulfilled, the others will be as well. That he would be one who is stricken by God, smitten and afflicted. That he would be the one offered in the place of transgressors. That he would be the one, the branch, who would gather the nations to himself. That he would be the one who would not see corruption, but be raised from the dead. Those scriptures would be fulfilled as well. Why? Why was Jesus going to die? Why was he going to be buried? Why was he going to be raised? For you. For your darkness. To rescue you from you. Indeed, the sovereign king would make certain that scripture would be fulfilled. And especially the scriptures concerning his sacrifice. Because friends, in a few short hours, Judas would return with a band of henchmen from the chief priests to the place where he knows Jesus will be, the Garden of Gethsemane, in order to betray him with a kiss. In a few short hours, a trumped-up court meeting outside of its own rules would convict Jesus of blasphemy and sentence him to death. In a few short hours, Jesus would be delivered over by Pontius Pilate to be crucified. In a few short hours, he would be nailed to the cross, nails in his hands, nails in his feet, raised between heaven and earth. In just a few short hours, the darkness that had swallowed up Judas would swallow up the whole earth. Between noon and three, it would be dark at midday. In just a few short hours, Jesus would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only time in the narrative, Jesus does not refer to his God as Father, but refers to him as God. And he bears our guilt, and he bears our shame, and he bears our curse, even as he takes the cup of God's wrath and drinks it down to the bottom. And in a few short hours, Satan will think that he's won. Just as he triumphed over the first Adam, so he's triumphed over the second. Just as he tried to foil God's plan in the garden, so he foils God's plan at the place called Skull. But in a few short hours, Jesus will rise from the dead. And he will triumph over the devil. And he'll triumph over the darkness. And he'll triumph over death itself. Friends, don't you see? In a few short hours, the hour for which Jesus had come, his, his death, his burial, his resurrection, it would be the moment of his great glory. It's why in the very next verse, as we'll see next time, Jesus will say, now, now, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now, God is glorified. Now, Jesus is glorified. Now, the light is shining in the darkness. And it is the case for your hour of darkness. 
It's for your hour of darkness. Listen, some of you have made peace with the darkness. There are some of you here today who have made peace with your darkness. But Jesus isn't going to let you go. His love is pursuing you. And he's determined out of your darkness, out of your sorrow, out of your night to rescue you. And you need to call on him. If you're tired of that darkness, if you're tired of going in circles, if you're tired of being at peace with with this, this messed up way that you've been trying to follow Jesus, call out to him. Call out to him. Because this Jesus, who is the sovereign king, who offered himself as a sacrifice in line with Holy Scripture, he's determined to rescue you. And your night, your night will become a glorious day. A day of light and joy and peace. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, out of our sorrow, darkness, and night, we come to you. And we come to you this morning as beggars. Luther was the one who said his dying words, we are beggars, it is true. Lord, we come as beggars desiring for you to shine the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in our hearts. Drive out the darkness. Rescue us from us. Rescue us from our hypocrisy and our deceit and our waywardness. But Lord, there's a sense in which I'm a beggar. A beggar for this myself, but also a beggar with your people. Standing in Christ's stead this morning, pleading. Because Lord, I know, I, I know there are people in here who have got, made peace with the darkness. I know there are people in here who have given in to, to darkness's lies and deceit. Lord, don't let them go. Don't let them go. Grant them your mercy and rescue them from them. I ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.